Living in difficult times, obviously, uh, is not easy. Times like a coronavirus. We face many challenges, fear, we don't know what to do, uncertainty, what's next. That's exactly what happened in our ministry. Ten teams canceled, our three interns decided to leave the country. We are not able to travel to the Yanis Haland to continue our ministry because of restrictions, the curfew, the quarantine. 90% of what we planned never happened last year. But in spite of these challenges, we know that he is in control. And we are grateful to him. We have our people praying for us, many Zoom meetings, and the ministry continues. But not because of us, but because of him. The glory for him. Yeah, I think being grateful and focusing on truth are the keys to just keep moving forward. We're so grateful for supporting churches like Wayside, um, for the contact we've had with the, for the body of Christ. I think all of us have probably uh, been more grateful for that in these times than we were before. Um, and focusing on the truth that God is faithful, He is sovereign. He brought us together. He started this ministry. We can look at his faithfulness in our own lives. We can look at his faithfulness to um, Bible characters like Ruth. I think of how he cared for this foreign woman in the middle of her plight. Um, and she's all worked into the history of Jesus. That's the kind of God that we serve. And that's the kind of God who gave everything for us. We focus on the gospel, what Jesus did for us. And we just have to be overwhelmed with gratitude that even though the external circumstances are, can be scary and unsure, we have a firm foundation, and we can, be, we can rejoice, we can be grateful, and know that he is in control. All right. Well, as Stephen said, my name is Cameron. I get to serve at Wayside as the pastor of the Stone Oak Student Ministries uh, and our college ministries as well, and I'm thrilled to be here with you guys tonight. Uh, when Steve uh, called me and said, hey, do you want to teach at the men's retreat? I said, absolutely, please, and thank you. Um, so, Stephen, thanks to you and to your team. I'm really excited to be here. And I wonder if I could, for just a moment, to ask you guys to bow and pray with me again before we dig into the Word. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we give this time to you. I ask God that you would speak to us in this moment from your Word. God, I pray that m my words would be helpful that they would be glorifying to you uh, and to your son, Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen. So my dad turned 60 about a year ago, and since he's a golfer, we gathered a bunch of friends, and we took him golfing uh, up at a golf course up in Stone Oak. And apart from a few clouds in the sky, it was a beautiful day perfect day for golf. So we got everybody warmed up. We split into two different groups and, and we went out and started to play golf and, and everything was going according to plan. Everybody was having a great time until suddenly as we finished the second hole, everything changed and I'll never forget. So I was, I was lining up my, my putt and I heard a snap and a crack in, in the trees above me. And if you've played golf before, you know, when you hear a snap and a crack, you do what? 
duck and cover, right? Because we realized that what had just happened is this little ball dropped a couple of feet away from where I was standing as some jerk face in the group behind us got impatient, took his shot at the green before we were safely clear on my dad's birthday. And so what I did is start to march up the fairway looking for somebody to yell at because this guy just hit into us. And just as I start my march back up the fairway, my brother calls to me and says, hey, Cam, I don't think that's a golf ball. And at that moment, another one landed right in front of me, and I got a good look at it, and I said, no, that's not a golf ball. It's hail! Everybody run! (laughs) So we hopped back into our golf carts and booked it for the safety of the clubhouse, and by the time we got there, we saw 20 other golfers uh, huddled under the the safety of the awning as as golf ball and baseball-sized hail pummeled everything in sight. Um... I'll never forget how surprising that whole experience was and how quickly uh, a beautiful day went bad. Um, And luckily, nobody was hurt or injured. But that's not always the case when things change, is it? So you probably heard the phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's one of those cliche things that Christians like to say to one another, but I wonder if you believe that tonight. Because here's the things, when our, when our lives are going well, many of us find it easy to trust that God loves us and that he is at work in our lives. But life doesn't always go according to plan. Many of us know too well that circumstances can change dramatically and tragically in a matter of moments. And suddenly we find ourselves struggling to trust that God loves us and that he does have a plan. So it's ironic I wrote that illustration about my dad back in February of 2020 as a part of a um, message to my students where we were uh, studying how to stay faithful to God when, when times are tough. And I didn't realize that just a few days later that would become a reality for me and for my family. So the very next week I was at a conference in Dallas when I received a phone call from my father-in-law informing me that my brother Roel had died by suicide at Texas A&M. And in that moment, I knew that my life and the lives of my family would never be the same. It it felt like the ground had crumbled beneath this and we were plunged into an ocean of uncertainty and pain and grief and questions with no answers. So the phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life was no help to me then because the circumstances felt like the opposite was true. So sometimes in our lives, an acute moment of pain throws our our life and our faith into chaos. And yet at other times, a prolonged period of disappointment and anxiety and confusion can over time cause us to lose hope and to question whether or not God loves or cares for us. And I wonder if you feel the anxiety of that in this moment. So I remember that period of about 48 hours back in March of 2020 when the whole world went on lockdown, right? So schools were closing uh, districts, sports teams were, were canceling seasons, and every institution or, or, or store that you've ever bought anything from sent you an email telling you how they were handling the developing coronavirus situation. Do you remember those days? And it seemed like overnight our entire country was gripped by fear over the spread of this virus. And after the initial shock of that shutdown, our experience of this moment has slowed way down. 
If we look back over the last year, it's been a series of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And in addition to the ongoing health crisis, we can add a financial crisis, extraordinary political turmoil, racial and civil unrest, and just a few weeks ago, an historic winter storm that plunged millions into darkness cost people in our community, what, billions of dollars, and some of them their lives. And it's like the last 12 months have been nothing but crisis after crisis after crisis, and so much pain and suffering has been unleashed into the world. So thinking back is heartbreaking and tragic. But it's not like thinking forward is any help because nobody has any idea where all this is going. So what's going to happen to the economy? How will that affect my business? What if I lose my job? What happens now that they're in power? How is this turmoil affecting my kids? What about this vaccine? Will it work? What happens if it doesn't? So what's behind us is tragedy, and what lies ahead is full of uncertainty, and we're left with this dark and confusing and anxious here and now. And it's been like all of life is being compressed, and and now all we know for sure is what's right in front of me. And and this moment of crisis is affecting us personally. It's, It's invading our community, our businesses, our churches, our children's schools, even our homes. So the question before us is, what do we do? How do we respond to the stress and the anxiety of this moment? Well, as followers of Jesus, we need to recognize that hardship is an expected and even necessary part of our development. So in Acts chapter 14, after being stoned in Lystra, Paul's lifeless body is dragged out into the street outside the city. They thought he was dead, but suddenly Paul stands up and starts marching back into the city. And as he goes, he says, Acts chapter 14, verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What a strange thing to say after you've been stoned. And not in, you know, anyway. (laughs) And in the letter that bears his name, James develops this point further in chapter one saying, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So for the believer, trials are moments of opportunity to exercise perseverance. And yet they're also moments when we're in great danger because with every trial comes a temptation. See, trials have to do with external circumstances, what's happening out there, but temptations have to do with our response to those circumstances, things that are happening inside of here. And let's make no mistake, this moment of crisis is a trial. Yes, this singular pivotal moment in our generation hasn't happened to anybody before. Nobody's alive that remembers the last pandemic. And we need to know that in moments like this, there are two opposing powers that will present us with two opposing options. So in uncertain times, our flesh and the evil one will lay before us the temptation to respond out of fear. But in uncertain times, God is laying before us an invitation to receive a deeper faith. So how do we live in light of uncertainty as we lead our families, teams, schools, and businesses? How do we thrive and not just survive? 
by fleeing the temptation to respond out of fear and by running to the Lord to receive a deeper faith. So tonight, I want to explore the pattern of faith modeled by a man who certainly lived through a time of crisis and uncertainty not unlike our own, the prophet Habakkuk. And if you're taking notes, I want to give you a roadmap for where we're going tonight. I have four points, and I'm no Michael Loudermilk, but I alliterated them so I could remember them. Number one, bring a righteous heart. Number two, be honest about your fears and frustrations. Number three, build your foundation on God. And number four, believe that God is at work. So first, a little background on Habakkuk. The author doesn't specifically indicate when he's writing, but based on the content of the book, the commentators believe that Habakkuk lived during the final decades of the kingdom of Judah, possibly during the reign of Jehoiakim. And and that was a dark period in the history of God's people. The social structure was breaking down, and at every level of society was gripped by injustice and moral decay. And the, the book of Habakkuk is is unique and unlike the majority of the prophetic books in the scriptures because he doesn't accuse the people of disloyalty to God. He doesn't plead with the people to change their behavior. In fact, he doesn't speak on God's behalf at all. Instead, all of his words are addressed to God where he's wrestling with the reality of evil in God's world and God's apparent lack of action. And here's the thing. Habakkuk knows God's character. He knows about God's commitment to righteousness and justice, but the wickedness that's swirling around him is completely inconsistent with his understanding of how God ought to run the world. And I I love the way that one commentator said it. He said, the book of Habakkuk is a rare look at the private diary of a confused preacher. And this wrestling is abundantly clear from the very first words in the book. If you're following along, chapter 1, verse 2 says this, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Um. So I don't know what your experience of that crazy snowstorm was a couple of um, weeks ago. I know that for some in this room, especially those who didn't lose power and water, maybe it was a minor inconvenience, but maybe for some of you it was scary or even dangerous. For for me and my, my family, the experience was somewhere in between. So we went something like 48 hours without consistent power, and it wasn't enough to keep our house warm. So we woke up on Tuesday morning, and the temperature in our house was somewhere in the 40s or 50s, like cold enough to see your breath. And no matter how much wood I shoved into our fireplace, I couldn't even heat our living room. It was cold. So by 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, my wife Becca and I started to look at our boys' faces, who were one and three years old, and they were beet red, and their lips were turning blue. Yeah, we were scared. We were concerned, or I should say, my wife was concerned. I just got angry, right? I Like, really angry. So I was pacing around my house crying, darn you, CPS, or curse you, ERCOT. And I was, like, watching the media updates from ERCOT, just wanting to hate those guys for what I thought they were doing to my family. And I was so mad that we were in the situation because, from my limited perspective and understanding, really seemed like it could have been avoided. I know it's probably not true, but that's how I felt in the moment. 
Because it was starting to affect my kids and there was nothing I could do about it. We had no idea when we would get our power back. I was furious that somebody's lack of planning or greed or whatever was putting my kids in danger. So thankfully, my wonderful parents braved the icy roads in their four-wheel drive um, Dodge and they came all the way across town to rescue us and take us to their house, which also didn't have power, but at least it was warm. And yet, even... After being there for a few days, I was still angry, like so angry. It was starting to affect the people around me. And finally, my wife had to come to me at some point and be like, why are you so angry? It's warm here. Our kids are fine. They're sleeping with your parents so that we can get some sleep. This is great. Why are you still mad? And at first I blew her off and said something like, well, this should have never happened in the first place. But her rebuke continued to grow in my mind, so and I could sense the spirit pressing on me to examine my heart. And I had to ask myself, okay, why am I still angry? And I didn't have to think about it for very long. I was angry because I was out of my comfort zone. I was angry because I didn't know when this would end. I was angry because I didn't know what was happening back at our house. Like I was, a, we had all kinds of people on our street, and, and people were posting all over Instagram the nightmare stories of burst pipes and collapsed ceilings. I was afraid that was happening at my house. I was upset because I didn't have the power in the internet, so I couldn't get any work done. I was frustrated. But if you boil those things down, it comes down to comfort and convenience. I was upset because I was uncomfortable, and I was upset because I was inconvenienced. And I'm not saying those aren't legitimate things to be frustrated about, but my reaction was way out of bounds. It was selfish, and ultimately it lacked faith. So, man, I want us to ask ourselves, in periods of turmoil and uncertainty, what's causing me to have such a strong emotional reaction? Is it anger over inconvenience? Is it that there's a change to the status quo? Is it a loss of comfort of some kind? See, I want to challenge us to interrogate the origin of our indignation. Check yourself. Because here's what strikes me about Habakkuk in the verses that we read. It's his, the motivation for his frustration. It's not that the crisis in his country is causing him discomfort. He's not outraged over the antics of politicians or leaders or that his wallet is about to get lighter thanks to the heavy taxation in Jerusalem. No, he's indignant because God's law is ignored. He's angry because the wicked are preying on the weak. So yes, emotion is welling up in his heart, but it's because of his zeal for God's law and his love for God's people. So the first key to living faithfully in uncertain times is, number one, bring a righteous heart like Habakkuk. You see, his commitment to God's cause is what broke his heart, but it's also what keeps him buoyant through the storm. You see, in this life, God hasn't promised us comfort, convenience, a well-funded 401k. But he has promised to bless those who seek after him. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you want to be satisfied? Then hunger and thirst for righteousness. The second thing that we can learn from Habakkuk about thriving in times of struggle is, number two, be honest about your fears and frustrations. So think back over the last 12 months. How often, men, have we bowed to pray? How often have you brought God into the conversation you're having in your head? So if I responded honestly to my own question, I would have to say, not often. 
See, instead, I give in to the temptation to respond to a given situation out of my own wisdom and strength, or, this is really good, I think, I know the scriptures, I'm a pastor, I know what God would say, and then I try to handle it on my own. And friends, that's such a tragedy given what we learn from the prophet's interaction with God. So we don't have time to do it now, but I encourage you to read the whole book of Habakkuk and consider how the prophet talks to God. It's raw. It's emotional. He doesn't hold back. And did you notice that the the verses we read earlier were in the form of an accusation? Habakkuk is saying, God, look what's happening to your people. Why don't you do anything about it? And then later in chapter 1, verse 12, God explains his plan to use the Babylonians to judge the unrighteousness of his people. And Habakkuk, who doesn't like that idea, says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? So some Hebrew experts believe that this is an insult of sorts. As if Habakkuk is saying, I I thought you were immortal. I thought you had all the power. I thought you had all of the wisdom. Is this your plan? So think about that for a moment. What we see here in the book of Habakkuk is the messy wrestling in the prophet's heart as he struggles to come to terms with how God runs the world. So after he lays out his grievances about God's plan, Habakkuk says this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. So Habakkuk realizes that God is the only one who can answer him. He says, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm confused, and I'm going to wait right here until you answer me. Because I have nowhere else to turn. Men, let's be more like Habakkuk. Now, I'm not suggesting that you insult God. If you do, gird your loins. Job learned that the hard way. But I'm pleading with you to see the heart of God. See, he's, he's not afraid of our doubts. He's not afraid of your frustration. He knows what's going on in our hearts. See, he invites us to wrestle and struggle with him. And like a loving father, he won't crush us if we take a swing at him. Rather, he'll wrap us up in his arms and hold on to us until we realize that what feels like discipline is actually God's warm embrace. So men, let's lay down our pride and come to God honestly and without hesitations. Bring your doubts out of the dark and allow God to deal with them. So Habakkuk responds, or God responds to Habakkuk's complaint about the Babylonians in chapter 2 by saying, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. So in other words, my judgment stands. I will discipline my people for turning from me. But don't fear Habakkuk. Let me show you what I'm going to do to the Babylonians. And then for the rest of chapter 2, he directs Habakkuk to pronounce five woes against Babylon. And these words are meant to encourage and comfort Habakkuk who can't understand why God would allow the evil Babylonians to triumph over the people of God. But God is saying, listen, just because I use a nation like this for my purposes doesn't mean I approve of their wickedness. In fact, I will judge all nations who engage in unjust economic practices, who use slave labor to build their empire, who lead by irresponsible and sensual men, and who idolize their own might and power. And in response, Habakkuk once again bows his head in prayer and says to God in chapter 3, verse 2, 
Lord, I have heard the report of you and I fear. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of our years. In the midst of the years, make it known. And in wrath, remember mercy. So in other words, Habakkuk, while he doesn't like God's plan, submits and trusts in God. He says, okay, God, I get it. I accept it. But please, if you're going to judge, be merciful. And then as Habakkuk is praying, he begins to call to mind past examples of God's faithfulness in moments of crisis. He begins to recall the exodus with Moses or the victories in the promised land under Joshua. So for example, he says in verse 11, sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched across the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you struck the head of the house of evil to split him from thigh to neck. So get this, as Habakkuk is facing the brutal and violent conquering of his people by the Babylonians, what does he do? He comforts himself by rehearsing God's faithfulness to his people in the past. He recalls God's past triumph over the forces of evil in anticipation of a future victory and salvation for his people. So when in a moment of crisis we see where Habakkuk has established his strength and it's on God and his promises. And my question for us is, men, where where have we established our strength? In moments of uncertainty, where do you look to be encouraged? What gives you the motivation to carry on in the face of adversity? Is it your own wit and intelligence? Is it your magnetic personality or mental toughness? Have you located all of your value in your family? Is your sense of identity rooted in your adherence to a political ideology? Does your confidence rise and fall with your investments? You see, we, we know that these are precarious places to build our lives, but, but often we do it anyway. And it becomes too obvious when our confidence falters as our circumstances change. So if we want to thrive and not just survive, we need a sure foundation that will never crack. Every other foundation will fail, but building our lives upon God's presence and his promises never fail. So number three, build your foundation on God. Call to mind his faithfulness in the past. And let it encourage you in the future. And finally, number four, believe that God is at work. Even when it looks like he's not. So Habakkuk concludes his his book and his prayer saying, I have heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like the hind's feet and he makes me walk in high places. So after rehearsing God's faithfulness in the past, the prophet looks towards the future. He's accepted God's plan and no longer has any accusations or questions for God. Why? Because through this encounter, the prophet has received a deeper faith. 
You see, previously Habakkuk was frustrated and distressed because he didn't like the way God was running the world. And it wasn't that he had a selfish, self-serving view of God's providence. He just couldn't understand why God would allow darkness to consume his people, God's people. But now the prophet sees that our circumstances don't determine God's love and care for us. In fact, it may be that God has a great purpose in our pain. So look back at verse 17. Habakkuk is lamenting over fig trees and fruits and oil and flocks. So to the ancient Israelites, these were symbols, not only of the material wealth and flourishing of God's people, but also of their spiritual health and vitality. And Habakkuk recognizes that the riches of his people are about to be plundered because of their spiritual bankruptcy. And yet he finds reason to rejoice. Why? Because God has turned the world upside down. Let me explain what I mean by that. Now, we don't know whether or not Habakkuk was alive to see the Babylonian hordes marching towards Jerusalem, but imagine that he did for a moment. What would he have thought as he saw their swords and spears gleaming in the distance? What would that have represented to him? Well, firstly, the the devastation of his people. Here come the Babylonians. But secondly, and hear this, it would have represented the unfolding of God's plan. See, even as the forces of darkness were surrounding him, Habakkuk had a mind like a hind or a gazelle with feet firmly planted on God's promises. Why? Because Habakkuk knows that God's plan is moving all of history towards his glory and for the good of his people. So even moments of intense struggle or pain are evidence that God is at work. This is a kind of faith that the world doesn't understand. And it sounds crazy, but because God is sovereign over all, we know that nothing is without purpose. Paul says it in Romans 8. It's, it's, it's the verse for this week. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And men, this is nowhere more clear than in the life and death of our Lord Jesus. What was the worst day in history, the brutal execution of the Son of God, became the best day when he rose again three days later. Why? Because through death, Jesus had conquered death. So do we always know why God allowed hard or broken things? No. But we can know for certain that it's not because God doesn't love us. He proved his commitment to us by joining us in the crisis at the cross. So yes, men, God does love us. And yes, he does have a plan for our lives. It might not always be what we hoped for or wanted. And it might involve pain, but still his plan is good. In the mess, God is moving. In the wrestle, God is working. In the frustration, God is growing our faith. So don't be overwhelmed by the darkness. Look for where the light is shining. Look for where the Spirit is moving because the light is shining and the Spirit is moving. Men, what if what looks like tragedy and turmoil is God sowing the seeds of revival in our country, in our community, and in our own lives? So let's not give in to temptation to fear the bad, but point number four, believe that God is at work. If you want to thrive in times of uncertainty, trust him and watch him bring beauty out of the brokenness. This is our God. He is good. He's worthy of our trust. Do you want to stand strong in uncertain times? Be like Habakkuk. 
bring a righteous heart. Be honest about your fears and frustrations. Build your foundation on God and believe that God is at work even when it doesn't look like it. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the encouragement that you give us through your scriptures. God, we thank you that uh, our worldview, our God, is bigger than our, our problems, our frustrations, and our struggles. God, we thank you that we can look at the, at the crisis happening out in the world and in our own lives and not fear. Why? Because you are God and you are good and you have purpose in the pain. So God, would you help us to be, to be faithful men, to be faithful leaders of your people, of our families, even through the hard times. God, would you create in this generation men who love you and chase after you even when it's hard. I pray that for these men and I pray it for myself. In Jesus' name, amen.